Well, just even being able to cry in front of someone like that's like, when do you do that? Like, that's all you ever want to do is not show that kind of weakness to people. Mm -hmm. You don't want to think you're crazy. Well, here's someone you're paying a lot of money to. Um, so what, what's the point? Like, really what, like, even the way I was, what's the point of this person putting a front to them, right? Like this would be the height of stupidity if I'm paying this person $150 an hour, <laughs> yes. right? Why, why the fuck am I pretending? That makes absolutely no sense. You know, like, and I, so I think it's just like, and I still would sometimes yeah. think, oh, I can't tell her that. She'll think I'm crazy. But I do think that's, I do think you're absolutely right. Like that experience. And then, you know, just moving forward from it. It did help me start to be more honest. I'm your host, Nick Willicke. Thanks for watching Flow State. Today's guest is journalist Anne-Marie McQueen. Anne-Marie has struggled with anxiety and depression for most of her life. In her early 40s, the coping mechanisms like intense exercise and binge drinking that had helped her to numb the intense feelings and emotions behind her anxiety and her depression stop working. In this episode, Anne-Marie generously and vulnerably shares her own story of navigating the emotional, physical, and spiritual transformation of midlife. Thank you for listening to this episode. If the hero's journey of midlife is personally relevant to you, please check out Anne-Marie's newsletter at substack.com forward slash hot flash ink. If ruminating thoughts make it hard for you to fall asleep at night or to be present with the tasks and people who you want to be present with during the day, then try a 30-day risk-free trial of our THC-free focus tincture at Sojin. You can find that on our website and use the code FLOWSTATE at checkout for an extra 25% off on your order. And now, a conversation about anxiety, depression, and healing between me and Anne-Marie McQueen. Thanks for listening. Anne-Marie McQueen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We're happy to have you here. I wanted to start off with asking about the hero's journey. You've compared oh. perimenopause to a hero's journey, and I wanted to start there. Could you just tell me a little bit more about um, how it is a hero's journey and just kind of unpack that a little bit? Okay. Well, when I was in my forties and I was a newspaper editor and, you know, I was feeling the thing that you only know in retrospect, which is that you want to do something else. Uh, and you're kind of done doing what you're doing, but that's a, that's a slow process mm -hmm. to figure that out. And it's a lot of arguing with yourself, but essentially you're being called to something else and you have to figure out what it is and you don't want to do it. Cause I had a cushy job. I had, um, I had, had golden handcuffs, I guess. I heard that a lot when I was a kid. I think my dad had gold makeups, um, you know, when you're just making money and you're comfortable. Um, so I was just doing different things to try and see uh, what would stick. And I was trying to write fiction and I went and did a screenwriting course. And there I learned about the hero's journey, which is everywhere, all around us. It's every poem, it's every song, it's every story, it's every film, a TV show. The hero is called, they're reluctant, they don't want to go, they don't want to deal with it. They go on the journey, they encounter a whole bunch of problems. Um, in screenwriting, they say, throw rocks at your character and then throw more rocks at them. And in the different acts of the 
of the film, you know, you, you, you know, when you think of your favorite movie and the, and it all seems lost and that's called the dark night of the soul. And, um, and then the, and then the hero overcomes and uh, is triumphant along the way. There are people who help, there are people who hinder. And then when they're triumphant, mm -hmm. they come back home and sort of share. Mm -hmm. And the, this archetype, um, it's very famous. Um, Joseph Campbell writes about it and there's lots of different variations, but I just started thinking when I was going through perimenopause and menopause of all the really hard times I've had and really dark, dark nights and not, not knowing for a long time what was going on and how there's so much more to menopause. So, you know, deciding that you deserve to be here, deciding that the rest of your life is going to matter too, uh, even though you're older or something you'd always been scared of. I just decided all of that um, made it a hero's journey. I just thought, and then I was obsessed with the hero's journey anyway. It was boring all my friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Everything is a hero's journey, uh, like even the smallest things, you know, if I went to the mall and something happened, I'd be like, oh, it's a hero's journey. But yeah, I really do think it's, I get really um, bajiggity about the conversation about menopause because I think it's very singular and not very nuanced and it leaves out a lot of the time the tremendous like emotional and soul shifts that are involved in the, um, in the transition. Mm. So that's what I mean by hero's journey. Like it's just it's everything. It's deciding who you are and why you want to be here and how you're going to continue mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Talk about that aspect of it a little bit more. The, the soul shifting part of it that you feel is maybe not talked about enough in um, the broader conversation that's happening about menopause and perimenopause. Well, as I'm, so I'm 52, I'm still in perimenopause, like the world's most epic perimenopause. I found out at 48, I was, in perimenopause, I guess, cause I just missed a period. And, but I think there was a lot of, um, denial going on with me cause I was a health and wellness journalist journalist and I certainly knew about it, but, um, mm. you hit your forties and we've all developed, like we've all developed coping mechanisms, uh, in our lives and ways of dealing with things. And we, you don't get to your forties, particularly when you're Gen X, uh, <laughs> a lot of this, but you know, like, I mean, you know, no one told us we were special and we, <laughs> we were feral and we, you know, we had to entertain ourselves by looking out the window and all sorts of things. So, <laughs> you know, and our parents told us all sorts, you know, stop crying. Like I remember crying and my mom going, stop crying in there. Like, you know, just, it was like, I don't know what it was like to be a kid at other ages, but we all brought, you know, there's some trauma that comes with you and you have these coping mechanisms mm -hmm. and they just stop, they just stop working. And I've seen it in men too. Yep. Um, so whatever it is you've done over time and whatever things you've thought about yourself, healthy or unhealthy, they're all challenged because you kind of hit a wall. And I'd yeah. say this happened to me around 41, 42, because your chemistry just starts going awry mm -hmm. And so something, you know, say one of my coping mechanisms was extreme exercise. And I'm by no means like, if you saw me, I don't look like I'm ripped or anything, but I have been someone who really, really uses exercise to calm down. So if I've always had anxiety, I've always had depression. If the anxiety was out of control, then I would just create like workout, like just the most crazy workout schedules and it would calm me down. So I'd be like, okay, so for four nights this week, I'll go to spinning and then I'll go to hot yoga. Like I would literally do that. I'd go to spinning and then hot, then Bikram. Mm -hmm. 
And then I, I would know that after four, yeah. three days of that or four days of that, my equilibrium will come back up and sort of forced myself. Yeah. Another coping habit I had was drinking too much. I was a binge drinker, you know, like I, I, I'm not a person who drinks during the week, but pretty early in my life, like 15, 16, I, I realized that if I was upset and I drank, at least I wouldn't think about it for a while, you know? So those are coping mechanisms. You get to your forties and those start not working. So you really, you really are having a hard time and you're having a hard time anyway because your hormones are all. Was it at that point in time, were you in perimenopause and did you feel, did they stop working because you feel like you're there, there was shifts happening physically or what kind of caused them to stop working? for you? Or why do you think they, they, they no longer kind of served you in the same way that they used to? We'll say, okay, those are, so those are my two big ones, like drinking and, and, uh, working out like crazy and having like a really clean eating schedule. Yeah. You just, they just, they just don't work, you know, like it's like, um, for example, when I was like 42, I was having just, I started the anxiety that I'd had in my life that I'd been able to deal with that way was just not going away. And it started to be like, I started to have these crazy nightmares that I was dying. Like I had these crazy nightmares that I would wake up and I, I would think that I was, I was supposed to have taken a pill that keeps me alive every day for the past, however long. And I wake up and I realize that I haven't taken this pill for a month. So I'm dying. So I'm searching for this pill. That's a nightmare. Uh, so every night I'm having this nightmare, nightmare. Like just, I would, I would wake up and I'd be like in my bedside table. And you're alone when this is going on. Um, and the, the panic attack, I was having panic attacks and my body was feeling very weird. So this ability to get myself under control is, with exercise and eating is lost. So that's why it's mm. not working. Like it's just, you're just, you're trying to do what you've always done and it's not working. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. again, what I'd always done is, you know, by doing those things, binge drinking and eating really, really healthy and working out, you're not paying any attention to your bad emotions, right? You're just shoving them down. You're shoving yeah. them down. Yeah. And you're I not think, sitting with the bad emotions, right? You're just like, no, trying to replace no. them and I, with endorphins. I never did. Or trying to, um, put your mind, uh, occupy yourself so intensely with something in the present moment that is all consuming that you don't have to be present with those feelings and you can kind of, they sort of fade. But then what, you know, but then I you guess know. The, the, the vicious cycle, not to say running and climbing because it climbing for me is that thing. Like right now, at least like, yeah. if I'm climbing, then it's like, it's so all consuming that when I'm doing yeah. it, I'm like, it's takes up everything, uh, like all my attention. And so it's so just relaxing for me. Um, but I hear what you're saying too, though. Cause it's like, it's also important to, you've also still, if you still got those feelings there, then you can climb all you want. And they, if they keep coming up and you're not facing them, then it's, it's always going to be, it's, it's almost creates like a dependency in you, right? Where it's like, I, in order to stop feeling this, I have to climb. And for you, maybe it's in order to stop feeling this, I have to like run or I have to drink. And in that case, something that's great and healthy goes from being a thing, a, like a healthy, happy pastime to being sort of like an addiction of sorts. Yeah. And I guess it kind of, I mean, anything not to feel this anxiety that I was feeling, which, you know, you're kind of jumping ahead, but, and I think you've probably learned this, the difference in you going climbing when you're 
want to go climbing and feeling better because it is the same as my trampoline workout I did today. I, I wanted to work out. I love it. I did it. it. It's done. I feel better. But I wasn't like trying to run away or stifle or, or stuff down feelings that are only going to come back later. And there's just something about I compare like people in their 40s. It's like a lid on a pot that just has been boiling for so long. And, you know, it's just there's 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 no room left. Mm. And I see this happens to men as well, because, you know, I'm single and I've dated and, um, you know, the guy the guy that I've been seeing, he said it's like he's got a vault and it's like filling up. It's like full. Like he's, he said that and he's not, he doesn't go to therapy, you know, anything, but just the way he described it, I was like, that's exactly what happened to me. And he was, he's younger and he's, he was at that age. So it's just all those things sort of start to come and then drinking, which had always been tremendous fun for me. First of all, you're, you're a bit too old to be doing it, right? Like it's just not as much fun to get drunk when you're 42 because you have this sort of shame. <laughs> <about it. laughs> like, you know, if you get too drunk and you're, if something happens, you're just like, I'm too old for this. Over here, a lot of people drink. It's expats. You know, there's a really big drinking culture. Mm -hmm. um, a problematic. Drink. Abu Dhabi. It's everywhere. Yeah. In Dubai. Like I did not encounter, I did not expect that really. Um, and it's funny because in my 30s, I had sort of tapered off that tendency to drink a mm -hmm. lot because my friends were all married with kids and there were just more people to drink with. So I just, I didn't, I didn't. And I, and it sort of resurged when I came over here and um, that stops working because you like, I didn't want to drink too much anymore. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like I did, I, yeah. it, where I used to be like, Oh, I'm going to drink tonight, you know? And like, it's going to be fun. I, I, by 41, 42, I didn't want to do it because it felt, made me feel horrible, like so much more horrible Anxiety would be so much worse from a hangover. Dread and all the feelings that people talk about, the fear yeah. would just be so much worse. But I was so anxious that I would go to events and I'd be like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink too much. I'll have and, and I started to almost not be able to not drink too much, like too many times. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I think I started to really examine my drinking in my 40s. Well, that's a good thing though. I feel like that's a good, healthy, yeah. reflective yeah. process. Yeah. And then in perimenopause, you you can't drink as much. Like you black out. Like I I had quite a few times where I wasn't actually you know I hadn't had that many crazy amounts of drinks, and I wouldn't remember like the taxi home, or you know. Whereas before when I was younger, you'd have to drink a lot. <laughs> I sound like all I've done is drink. Not... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when people say blackout drunk, that's a big night. Like you, you know, that's not a good way to be. The, I would I would have blackout periods. There's no shame in it. I. Uh... A lot of cab rides I don't remember. I'm sure that I don't remember them, right. but I'm sure there are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't remember. I mean, I just, I've been, a, you know, that's my life. But so all these things are coming together. And then my health just was not good. Like, I just, I was having all these symptoms. And um, what were some, what were some of your symptoms out of curiosity at this point, at this point in time? So that was early on. So the, the panic attacks, not understanding that just having like really just being overwhelmed, almost having like um, tantrums. Like I, I just remember one night I was going to watch a movie. I was living with a guy at the time and we were getting all ready to watch a movie and I somehow tripped and I, we had bought these watermelon juices and I spilled it like on the bed where we were going to lay and watch the movie. So, you know, and I had an absolute meltdown, like a baby. And he was like, Oh my God. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll watch the movies. Like, no, you're going to sleep. Like, I'm not watching a movie with you. Like whatever I thought was, I don't even, I, I like, you're going to bed. Like he made me go to bed like a little baby. 
<laughs> it was like the only thing you could do because, but just, I mean, I run a department, I can handle a lot of things, but like little things like that would be happening. And I just wouldn't know what was going on. I had like, I was just constantly at the doctor because I had chest pains and I thought I was like, I just thought I was dying. I would have tingling in my head. I had bad headaches. And then that relationship was starting to break down. Um, and I found out that my sister-in-law, um, was ill. She had a brain, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor when my niece and nephew were really young and those things collided. And I, um, I just started like things, I developed a terrible fear of flying. Like just, an, I, I mean, I fly all the time over here. I was going home like, uh, you know, once or twice a year and traveling all over for fun. And I just started to get like this terrible fear of flying, which I hear a lot of women say, um, and my, all my eyelashes fell out, which I wouldn't say is a perimenopause symptom so much as it is a symptom of just, you're, you're literally like pushing yourself so hard. You're under so much anxiety and you have sort of like adrenal burnout. And, you know, one of the doctors I went to was a naturopath who helped me heal from mm. that. Um, but she never said perimenopause either. All this stuff just now in retrospect seems very much like it's perimenopause. How long was this period um, where you were experiencing these kind of crazy, you were experiencing these symptoms and you didn't know that it was perimenopause and you think that it was? How long was that period? Oh, well, I didn't realize I was in perimenopause. I feel so dumb about this because I'm a health and wellness journalist. Uh, I didn't realize I was in perimenopause or realize and slash accept it until 47, 47, I would say, um, because I skipped a period and there was no reason to, like, I could always, ex I think I pit skipped a period when I was like 46, but it's, I always, if I was flying from Canada, you can always sort of like write those things off. Right. And I don't know why I just was scared of getting older. I, I didn't think I didn't know about perimenopause. So I just assumed I'd go through menopause sometime in my fifties and it would just be, I, you know, I just didn't know there was this long runway to it. And even at 45, I started to get curious about it. And I have this book by um, Oprah's menopause doctor. And I read the chapter on menopause and she makes, she's a pretty like holistic person. So she made it sound pretty good. And I was like, you know, this doesn't sound bad. Like she explained how the hormones diminish, but then your other hormones rise and sort of leave you at the, the steady state you are. Yeah. Um, when you're in the in monthly cycle and that actually we're much more like there's a, there's these days when you're ovulating, when you're, when you're younger, that you're just like ready to take on the world. Like everyone knows about these days in their cycle where you're just like 150% and you're just like, if I could be like this all the time. And the way Dr. Christiane Northrop explained it was that once the whole menopause transition is over, once you've been through it, that's how you kind of feel. And I was like, okay, great. This is great. This is going somewhere good. And I was in the middle of this perimenopause <laughs> stuff when I read that chapter. So that's just, there's just no excuse. So that was like something that you thought you were looking forward to? Like, like oh, if I, like, I'm going to feel like my 150% days every day when I'm, yeah. when you're post-menopause. Yeah. Is that right? It was what she was saying? Yeah. 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 And I had no idea. Like, I just had no idea it was anywhere near. And mm didn't connect any of the situations. No, it was happening. as like the, it was as long as the tr transition basically, or like a, a period no. of time in your life. No. And you're not skipping your periods. Like now that I look back on it, my period definitely changed. And I say this to women all the time around 41, 42, it started to be like the fourth day I'd have bad cramps. 
and not the first day, but it was always the same length. So you can just tell yourself, no, no, it's the same. They always say if you're missing them, you know, um, if they're a regular and they're not a regular. And I see this with my younger friends because I'm annoying because I talk about menopause all the time and they're, they're 40 and they don't want to talk about themselves. <laughs> right? Like no one does. I don't want to be the knowing glance 52 year old all the time, but it's like, you know, like my friend was just saying the other day, she's 41 and she was saying, I just can't get my energy. And I was like, <laughs> you're like, I think I might have an answer that you don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I know you, you know, I know, you know what I'm thinking and it's, I just don't want to be that person. Yeah. Like even my best friends, it could be a lot of things that, that it could be menopause. It could also be health and nutrition. It could be a lot of things. Right. And you're more of an expert yeah. on that than I am. Yeah, well, but when it's a very when it's a very healthy friend, you're just like I. I, I mean, it's, it's a very. It doesn't mean anything. It could be 15 years away. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I saw probably 12 doctors during that time. I was always at the. You know, I I would have these terrible, terrible headaches. I went. I wound up in the ER for these headaches. Um, I had chest pains in the middle of the night that were so bad. I called an ambulance and went and had a complete cardio workup. And they took it very seriously. I think I was like 44. And um, and that was actually good. I, I mean, I checked everything out and that was good because sometimes I'd be sitting on my desk at work looking at my staff and I would have like chest pains. And I think, okay, you haven't been having a, a heart attack for four years. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, but I would just have weird feelings. I'd say to my friends, do you ever have tingling in your head or tingling in your hands? And people would like look at me because, you know, when you when you're going through weird stuff, you're always sort of asking front people what it is. Yes. 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 To you I, they, I had that experience with anxiety. I, I, I had and, that. I got diagnosed when I was I've always looked at I've I got diagnosed with anxiety when I was 18. I've always asked people and like tried to get advice and feedback and try to get like a sense of what other people are feeling and what helps them. Um, and yeah, I was asking a lot of people for a long time and I felt like not, nobody really quite was on the same page. Um, but you know, what makes it hard, I think is that you don't, sometimes it's hard to un un know what you're feeling, to know what you're experiencing and to be able to share that, to be able to communicate that with somebody. I'm like, I, I think I told you, like I just turned 30 and my friends, I like can have a better conversation with my friends about mental health at 30 than I could when I was 20, even though like when I was mm -hmm. 20, it would have been really helpful for me to talk about my anxiety when I was in college and I was really anxious, but I just kind of stuffed it down by like, you know, studying and partying. Right. But now at 30, you know, like I can actually, I'm, I have friends that I can say, Hey, you know, like, friends that when I don't even want to talk about how I'm feeling or I'm like, I don't want to put this in on anybody. People would be like, Oh, like what's going on. Something's on your mind. And mm. I think that, so sometimes it's, I think that's part of what makes it hard is um, kind of what you were saying. Like, I don't know exactly how to articulate what I am feeling. And it's like, right. it, it's just like, yeah, it's just yeah, that's a great word. For, it's lonely. Yeah, it's just like it's almost just like you throw up your hands. It's like ah, you know, and that is almost the most relatable feeling, right? It's like just yeah. like I get that. I get that. I get that. Yeah, I, that's a tough one. I did that most of my life because I felt like that most of my life, and it was not something that people talked about. 
when I was younger at all. And I think even when I was in my forties and I would try to talk about it with friends, you know, I have, I have really strong friends and some people, you know, are just very sturdy, right? Like they just don't have the same fragility. And if you don't have it, you really don't understand it. Like it's very, very difficult for you to, you know, my sturdy friends who just haven't had anxiety, they just don't get it. And, um, you know, there's just nothing more lonely than saying that you feel a certain way and having someone be like, well, why don't you, Oh God, I don't know why you don't go on antidepressants. Like there's an answer there for you. I don't know why you don't take it. And I did feel in my forties that I was on quite a quest. And I, I knew that that was there for me, you know, because I was feeling worse than I, I ever had emotionally. But I also felt like I was in a search for something. I did feel like I was on this sort of journey, like in retrospect, not at the time. Um, and I just felt like I think something's wrong and I don't want to go on antidepressants. And this is a completely personal choice, but I don't want to go on antidepressants until I find out what what's wrong. And that and that ended up being true and not true. You know, like there was something wrong because I had all this growing and all these things I needed to look at and do and realize. And I'm glad I didn't go on antidepressants. A lot of women do, and there's a lot of talk in the menopause space about how that's not probably really appropriate because a lot of it has to do with your hormones. And this is where things get really tricky because the conversation now is like, if you're in perimenopause, go on, go on HRT because you don't need to feel like this and it helps anxiety and it helps everything. And having never gone on either and no judgment, I feel like I, I did work a lot of things out emotionally, like not knowing that I was in perimenopause, I wouldn't maybe trade it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, like it, it was tremendously hard, but it also forced me to like change the way I dealt with absolutely everything mm -hmm. and change the way I felt about myself. And, you know, I lived my life in a lot of fear and, uh, I, 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 I didn't let myself ever sit with emotions. And so when you shove those things down, they're just always ch dogging you and chasing you. And, um, you know, I was a chubby kid and I had stuff from my parents and I, I had a belief that there was something wrong with me that I, I wasn't like other people, you know, all of these things that I had to heal that have taken me like a decade. And I'm, of course there's always more work to do, but it's kind of like, would I change it? Like, obviously I would like to know that this was happening but I also drives me nuts when people just, it's not all perimenopause. Do you know what I mean? Like it's this, it's this octopus of things <laughs> that are going on at the same time. Um, so that's why in, in hot flash, I kind of, I'm really, it's not the kind of platform where you can get like 5 million subscribers mm -hmm. because it's not simple enough. You know what I mean? Like, the people who are doing so well on social media and that's fine. They're just like all hormone therapy or all natural or, you know what I mean? But, um, I'm like, this is everything. This is everything. There was, there was a Michelle. That's so interesting to say that because the, my former, the, my former guest on the podcast, uh, Dr. Dolores Fernandez is a certified menopause practitioner. I asked okay. her, what is it about menopause that uh, makes it, so so challenging for for women to get the treatment that they need because it seems that that 
this, they're not the outcomes, you know, a third of women basically say their doctor's not comfortable talking with them about menopause. And, yeah. and she said, uh, I think it's because there's so many things going on. That's what she said. I think it's because there's so many things going on. Like it requires, it's, it's like a doctor on average only spends four minutes with a patient in North America. And it's just like, they're really, they're really just saying, oh, you should go on antidepressants. Oh, you should go on the hormone replacement therapy. Because like, it's almost like, hey, I just got to try to get you a little, you know, a little bit better, as close to better as I can with this amount of time. And that's not the doctor's fault, right? You know, it's, that's the way the system is here. But, um, no. but what, her, what she's doing, and this is cool, because kind of what she's doing and what you're doing is you're saying like, hey, like, there's other things, right? Let's have a conversation about this. Let's have a conversation about this. Let's get the dialogue going. Let's let people share their stories. And there's liberation in the stories. Yeah. There's liberation and community and just being seen in the stories. And um, so that's what she's doing. And it's cool. She's a doctor. She's a doctor. She's so right. Yeah, she is so right. It is, there is so much going on. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. And even now that I'm 52 and I know what's going on, there's even more stuff going on physically. Like now that I feel like I'm getting my head together, well, I've got a fatty liver and that could be contributing. And I've got my gut, I had healed a gut issue. And then I just found out that I have thyroid antibodies, which might mean my thyroid's a little bit, you know, nothing major, but I'm just like, oi, oi, oi. Like when, when is this sort of like stream streamers of stuff all interconnected gonna stop? And um, you really, uh, the, the energy, you don't always have very much energy. So even getting an appointment with the doctor and keeping it and seeing them and then being brushed off. Cause I've, I've just had that experience recently. You, I mean, I just went a, to, uh, you had like a kind of pivotal experience, right? Like where you were making tea, right? Is that, is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. It's a pivotal experience that that was like an inflection point. And I guess if we're kind of going back to the hero's journey, that would be the hero, kind of goes through this dark night, which it sounds like, but then they get to this point of, of this inflection point of coming, starting to come back around on this journey. And it's starting to, there's hope again, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Is that what your, that inflection point was for you? Can you hold on? I've got to plug in my computer. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah. We can edit this. That's out. great. That's a great place for an intermission. Yeah, <laughs> and on that note, intermission, yeah. stay tuned. I could tell you're a writer. You know how to leave a good cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. Just a little bit. Okay. Okay. Okay, so... A couple of years ago, they came up with this study that said the worst time of life is 47.2. That age of 47.2 is like the U. It's like the bottom of the U. And what's hilarious is that's when it was absolutely the worst for me. And this is the thing about perimenopause. So much is going on with you and all you've experienced up here, your whole everything. And then outside, because you have, you know, most people have kids. And, and people are having kids later and later. So sometimes you've got like toddlers and young kids at home, or you've got kids going out in the world. You've a lot of people have aging parents mm -hmm. and career stress. Um, it's a very pivotal time in your career, or maybe you want to change careers. And so all this stuff kind of comes crashing. And I had like a genuine, uh, like midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. 
like, you know, I'd always heard about a midlife crisis and I just had multiple things. I had three things happen. I had a, I had a two-year relationship that I found out that it was, everyone's talking about narcissists. I had a relationship with someone who was just, he wasn't anything that he said he was. He was a real charming, fun guy, but he, he was telling a lot of stories and I didn't know. And so I, I had a real, it was a huge shock. I found out in a week, a bunch of things about him and it was horrible. And I was shooketh because I'm a journalist and I'm supposed to have a good uh, detector for these kinds of things. But people like this are very, they're very good. So I was floored by this situation. And then an old, um, my first love came back into my life and wanted to re um, reignite things after 18 years, we'd always sort of dance through our twenties. And so we started that romance and it was everything I ever thought it was. And I went to visit him and we were making plans uh, for them for their future. And my newspaper was being sold and I was on the committee to sort of oversee the um, uh, sale and the, and the, the transition. And we all had to interview for her jobs and I didn't get my job. At least something happened in my interview. I'm not very good at, I'm not a very good, I'm not very good at not saying what I think. And I said what I thought about the paper and that is not at all what this person <laughs> it was the opposite of what she wanted uh, the newspaper to be. And lo and behold, I did not get my job and someone under Dang. me got my job. Um, who, and, and so I, that was terribly shocking, but I uh, sped up my plans to go move to Canada to be with the first love. And then he changed his mind. So the combination of this first guy, like it was just a crazy eight months. Yeah. Like my friends were just like, Oh my God. That's a roller coaster of an eight months right there. I bet there was a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows there. It was an unbelievable eight months. Um, yeah. And I never really gave myself time to, I didn't have time to sort of really fully process the first thing before this other guy. Anyway, I was flattened. Like I've never been like that, you know, and my job ended and I just, and I think that's like, just uh, I'll pa pause there, but I will take continue the story. But I think that's such an interesting thing. The way that you said it is I didn't have time to process because I, that is some, another guest, Erica Hallwell set was talked for an hour basically about processing and how in our society things move so quickly that Ugh. nature has a way of of processing stress. It, it, there's natural cycles, and it takes a certain amount of time to for nature to for something to kind of work its way out, work its way through in nature. And animals are like this. You know, an animal will go after it's attacked or experiencing a traumatic situation. It will go and it will lay somewhere and it will hide, and it has a natural cycle. Yes. And you know, in our society, you know, taking that time to process, it has to be a conscious choice. But anyways, I just really interesting that you mentioned that. Um, oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. My cat, my cat did that when I was a kid, just like got hurt and went, went away for two weeks and then came back. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I was, so, I was so flattened that I, I did do nothing well, for a month and then I went home to Canada and it was kind of a disaster because when I go home, it's, you know, party and see people. And I was, I was not okay. Like I was really seriously not okay. And for probably about six months, I, I don't think I would ever commit suicide, but I'd say constantly running through my head was, I don't want to be here. You shouldn't be here. Like a voice in my head. Like, what are you doing here? Like, what do you, what are you doing here? Why like are you on here? this planet or in, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be but. here. And if something could have, happened where I, d I didn't have to be here, where I didn't have to 
let my family down by doing it. I, I, I started to think fantasize. I had suicidal ideation, I guess you could say, but nothing's nothing serious. But I would think, oh, I would actually think it would just be, I can't because I just had bricks on my chest. I was just like, you know, people who've been through this, whatever had happened, it was just all gone. Everything I believed in, everything I thought like being a success meant nothing coming over here. Everyone was just saying, come home. I didn't want to go home because I knew no one there would understand me. Um, they mm. do, but it, I'm, a, I'm like two people sort of, you know? And so I just had the absolute hardest time. And it's the, I, I also, everyone that, lo- there were, there were, uh, there was a group of people who did lose their jobs and they were all rushing to get other jobs. And I consider this a really pivotal time in my life because they were going into PR, which I've never, it's never appealed to me. And I was like, I can go get another high paying job, but I've got this, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm not scared. I've got money. Like I can, I can weather months, a, long, a while, you know, I got a nice severance and mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. if I go get another job, nothing's going to change. Like nothing is going to change. I'm just going to go get another job. And, and I knew inside me, like under all that pain, I knew that I had other things to do, but I really had that time. And I, I took it. Like I took a lot of time and it was horrible. It wasn't fun. How, how long <laughs> like, did you take out of curiosity? Well, I mean, I didn't do any work for about three months for okay. the first month. I do not, I cannot tell you what I did for the July. It's that's 50 degrees here. That, that's in Abu Dhabi. Pardon? I said, that's beautiful. That's great. I mean, it was like full Google calendar and then just nothing. And I know I would just, I, you know, it took me like two weeks to unpack the stuff from my desk. Like it would just sit on the table and I'd be like, oh, and I did go swim in the pool on my roof. I remember every day I'd be like, just do 10 lengths. And it would just be like everything I could do. And then I, I built up to 15 lengths and it's not a long pool. It's very short. <laughs> I'm like an pool. Dude, that's, but, the, um, that's the healing though. That's the healing. Yeah. That's the animal. That's your cat, you know, disappearing for two weeks. That's the animal retreating to a cave or to underneath a tree and just feeling, just feeling. It was, yeah. In a way, I wish I could. It sounds stupid because I would love to take a month off now. And sometimes I'm jealous. I'm like, but you felt so crappy when you were doing it. But like, whatever. I just feel like that character in the movie, you know, who's just like, you, the scene comes and they've just got stuff all over and they're in their pajamas. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I, I love the movie. Have you ever seen the, bro- the Brothers Bloom? Have you seen that movie before? No. Oh, yeah. The Brothers Bloom? The Brothers Bloom with Adrian Brody. No, I haven't. I got to see that. There's a recovery scene in that movie where he is in a, Adrian Brody is in a, like some, just like a dark room, basically a dark house, like a dark apartment. He's got booze, like his whole place is just a mess. And his brother walks in and finds him in there. And he's just like, at the last day of this kind of period of his life, but it's just like, he's like, all right, he fought, his brother finds him. He's like, all right. He's like, you done your thing. You're ready. And he's like, I'm ready. You know, like I did, I got, I did, I got all this out of me. Like I needed this, this time, but I got it all out of me basically. Great. You know, what's interesting with, I got to see that movie. I love Adrian Brody so much. Um, you know, what's interesting about this time was that I was so upset that I couldn't drink. I didn't drink. Mm. And that's a really, for the very first time in my life, I was like, I can't drink because I can't feel any worse tomorrow than I do right now. Like, it's just, I will not be able to handle feeling like one mm. bit worse. So I didn't, I really, cause I think I went drinking one time and it was horrible. Like I just was, I had the worst hangover. I had to call like three friends. 
I thought I was going to like, I just, and then I was like, you can't, you can't do mm-hmm. this. You're, you're physically, mm-hmm. emotionally can't handle a hangover on top of this. Mm-hmm. God, it's so dramatic, but it really felt like it. It really, really, really was hard. So when I came back. I know it's not all, I know it's not all hormones in menopause. It's not no. hormones. It's not all hormones. Some of it is, and some of mood is hormones. Um, do, and some of drinking alcohol and hangovers affects the hormones a lot, right? From what I've heard. And yeah. sort of diet and like nutrition and things like that. Yeah. Um, was that a big part of it, do you think, for you at that period of time? Or do you think it was kind of just more general, like, you know, mental health, like depression, anxiety kind of things? Like, curious what, as you're well, in general. On in general, drinking becomes a lot less fun in your forties, unfortunately, because you're just a you know, hormone. You're just, you're suffering for a couple of days and it's like, it's just not, it's not fun during this time. I think this really was like just this midlife, these three things that hit me really, really hard. And so anyway, I was, I was mm-hmm. not drinking, which was a really great experience for me because I had never done that. You know, I had, I think I wanted to do that, but I hadn't done it, but this sort of forced me not to drink. And I went places and didn't drink and just because and sit there like a lump. Um, and I came back to, I came back to Abu Dhabi a couple months later. I'd probably been in this sort of depression downward spiral for about, not downward spiral, just down and uh, for about six months. And I, about the tea, I was making tea and I just had this screaming in my head all the time. Like this shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I don't want to be here. Why isn't anyone helping me? Why doesn't anyone care? And that's not true. People did care, you know, like my friends cared a lot, but there's only so much you can do when someone is that low. Mm. And there's only so much I wanted to talk about it. Right. Like there's just, you don't want to be the downer. So you pretend and it's just this interplay. Right. But my friends did Mm. care a lot. Like I remember my friend gave me this expired bag of Xanax and Ambien when she left, when she moved, she was moving away around then. And someone said, why would you give her enough <laughs> to like kill herself? And she's like, she's not gonna No, Apparently they had a discussion. Like that was a very bad move that you did that. And I just, I had one every so often, but I was in my kitchen making tea and this was in my head. Just why doesn't anyone care? Why isn't anyone helping? I was thinking about my brother. Like, why isn't he calling? Why aren't people doing like, right. it's crazy. It's no like, and I just had this moment where it's like, because it's you, this is your responsibility. Like this is, entirely yours to fix. No one's coming to fix mm. this. No one can fix this. It was just this moment. Like, and then from there it's been up. Like, it's been like, I was joking. It's like a Rocky crypto. Like it's been up all the way since then, you know, like uh, the candles, it's that moment of like, okay. Okay. Like I can realization. Amory. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all there is. You have to take full responsibility for yourself. And what I see a lot in perimenopause is every, what I had. Okay. Cause I, I never got married or had, or had kids, Nick, but I always wanted to get married, but I realized okay. I don't know if I wanted a relationship for the things I want a relationship for now, which is like to share my life with another human, to grow, to push each other, to like, you know, all the things I honestly think I just, I thought someone else would take away a lot of the pain that I felt just because I wouldn't be alone. Yeah. And I've seen other relationships and it just, it doesn't do that. You know, like that's not really, <laughs> that's not really <laughs> what the relationship does, you know, it's not, that's too much mm. pressure on a relationship. So mm. Mm. yeah, things got a lot better after that. 
and I think that's falling. so sweet. That is yeah. so. Uh, my friend, uh, one of my friends, Priska, says you gotta own your shit, own it, like own it, and nice. and walk right through that. All the good stuff and the failures, all the good stuff and the failures. Just walk right through that shit. You know, so that this is mine. This is mine, and I'm okay with it, proud of it, happy with it. This is my journey, um, and it's cool coming from her too because um, she is in, med in medical school and has had a lot of challenges with uh, with it. Um, and it always goes back, I feel like, to childhood, um, mm -hmm. the way we learn. Um, I had a relationship with my family where I had eight siblings and two and and uh, yeah, eight siblings, <laughs> the look on your face. And uh, I, I'm the oldest brother and I have a major just other people being happy is kind of what makes me happy. And right. so I just want to people please and make sure everybody's okay and safe and happy and everything like that. And so surrender, giving, surrendering that and letting myself be okay with just me being happy, that was a transformation. And um, that was, you know, it's just like you said, it's nobody else can make me happy. And needing to make other people happy is actually a weight that you put on other people. Right. Because you're saying, Hey, I need you to be happy in order for me to be happy. And, and it just pushes people away. You know, it just pushes people away. It's like, it, it doesn't help you or them. And it's great. You know, it's, it's better. It makes, it's happier. It's a better life. I think to just say, Hey, you know, like I'm responsible for my reality. I create my reality. I treat other people. I treat myself the way I treat myself. I treat other people the way I want to be treated. And I'm responsible for that reality and I'm responsible for my feelings too. Like I can't control what other people do to me, what they say to me, how they treat me. If they want to be with me, if they don't want to be with me, if they want to, I can't control any of that. Like I can control what I do, what I say and what I think, which is, I think really important. What I think about all of that. Absolutely. That is the hugest thing I've learned. And I've really been getting that lately is like, I, I always am forward and then pulled back and forward and pulled back in terms of the thoughts right. because I have a really long history and a really nasty person in my brain, you know, like a really, a really, and right before I moved to Abu Dhabi, actually, I was going up skiing um, in Quebec with driving with my friend who's 10 years younger. And I was sort of telling her, I don't know, something about a guy, but I was revealing sort of how crappy I thought about myself, like this thing I mm. thought where there's something wrong with me. And I remember her saying like, how long have you been like this? <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, that's really how I'm supposed to be, you know? And that's just, that's a long process. But when you, when you talked about other people, like, I think when you don't let other people be the way that they are and you're trying to make them happy and you're, you're not, you're not okay unless they're fine. That's, it's, it's really manipulative mm. in a way. Right? Like, but also it's, it's, I think it's because you're not okay with your own emotions, right? When you're shoving mm. your own emotions down, anyone else's emotions are going to be uncomfortable for you. Like it's mm. only when I started to be able to process my emotions that I have been able to let other people who are going through stuff go through it without feeling like my whole safety net is being punctured, you know? Mm -hmm. Like it's my, I, I just noticed that because my brother's had some hard times and um, – and it would just wreck me, you know, it would just like wreck me. And it's not that it's easy to let him go through it now, but it's easier because I don't feel like I have to fix it and I don't leap. And I'm a better sister because I just respond and listen, you know, I don't 
shoot solutions at him that he doesn't want. Hmm. What was your childhood like? It was, um, it's interesting because I had therapy in my forties for four years and I'm sort of like not so into therapy anymore. Um, okay. One of the reasons this is just an aside, but one of the reasons is that I gave a lot of power over to my therapist and I was dating this guy for two years who was someone very charming, kind, fun, cool, took really good care of me, but made me terribly anxious all the time. And that's because I knew deep down something wasn't quite right. Like I just, my body was trying to say like, not right. And so I would always talk to her and she'd say, Amory, this is your codependency from your childhood. Cause she knew all about my childhood. Uh-huh. And I'm actually in her book as like a case study of me and this guy and how you have a person with anxious attachment and a, a avoidant and a military guy. And a, and it's like, it was a complete sham. Like, <laughs> like never once, t- first of all, I was always like, Oh, I'll just talk to the therapist and then I'll feel better. And she'll tell me that my boyfriend's fine. And it's just me. Yes. And yes, that's crazy, right? Like that's just giving up so much power to someone else. I would never do that again. But also once in four years or two years that we were together, she might've said, you know, this guy makes you pretty consistently stressed out. <laughs> Maybe there's something I can't see from, you know, St. Paul <laughs> on zoom. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I had some bad experiences with therapy just to comment on really? it. good and some bad. I had one where yeah. I had a, I had a great, actually mostly bad, but I had one really good one. But towards the end, it just started to get like, Hey, I'm ready to, I'm ready to kind of move, do my own thing. And, um, it's been a really great time, but it's important yeah. for me to keep growing and, you know, keep moving. And, um, I think I just kind of saw from that, like, Oh, these are people too. You know, therapists are people too. You know, they are, yeah. they're, they're hurting their people. They're bringing what they got, you know, they're bringing their experience, their trauma and everything into what they're doing. And so yeah. it's just, that's the reality. Um, it is really nice. It is really helpful, but it's got to, it's one of those things where it's like, it's almost like you got to have friends around you and family around you and stuff that can help you kind of reflect on that relationship too, give you advice and, and, and. I had to, I had to kind of move on from it and it was harder than I was expecting, but, um, yeah, they're people too. They're, they are people too, for sure. Yeah. And they're, they're just like, in a way they become, when it's that long, they become like your friends who know things about you that if you tell a story, they're going to start to frame it. Right. Like say guys, I was always insecure with guys. Well, my friends will be like, Oh, there's Amory. She was insecure with guys. They're just going to start listening to the story through that lens rather than a confident person. Well, it's just like that. Like she just, and to, just to get to my childhood, um, I, I went say, to her. Hmm? Oh, so, sorry. I would say that the thing about, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think the thing about therapy was it was actually the, the, the good part of it was it was like the first person that I really, that I really trusted, I think. Yeah. And that was a good thing because I needed yes. that. Like I was, I didn't have that kind of vulnerability with like my parents growing up as a child or even like my siblings, my friends, I had this whole, I got to be a tough guy to be strong for my family. And so mm-hmm. my, that my, I'm thankful for my therapist. Cause like he pulled that out of me. He's like, Hey, you gotta trust me. You gotta be vulnerable. You gotta trust me. And so I'd say 99% of that was great. 99% of that was great. Well, just even being able to cry in front of someone like that's like, when do you do that? Like, that's all you ever want to do is not show that kind of weakness to people. Mm-hmm. You don't want to think you're crazy. Well, here's someone you're paying a lot of money to. Um, so what, what's the point? Like, really, what, like, even the way I was, what's the point of this person putting a front to them? 
right? Like this would be the height of stupidity if I'm paying this person $150 an hour. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why why the fuck am I pretending? (laughs) That makes absolutely no sense. You know, like, so I think it's just like, and I still would sometimes think, oh, I can't tell her that. She'll think I'm crazy. But I do think that's, I do think you're absolutely right. Like that experience. And then, you know, just moving forward from it did help me start to be more honest about mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You're get, starting to um, mention a little bit more about your, your childhood um, as well before I interrupted well, you. No, well, I mean, I went to therapy because I was having this relationship breakdown and I was mm-hmm. so stressed out about my sister-in-law and I was disintegrating. Like I was also having very bad, almost like nonsensical fears. You know, like I was, um, like one time I took my niece to... Um, daycare when she was just little when I was home visiting and my dad took me to the world figure skating championships and right in the just as a skater I I used to be a figure skater so it was like my dream I never thought I'd get to go to this and the skaters are hitting the ice and it's just amazing and I just my brain said you left her in the car you left her in the car she's not in the daycare she's not in there and like crazy I forget what intrusive thoughts but really like scary and then I couldn't say to my dad, like, I think I left Lily in the car because I knew I didn't leave her in the car because I could remember taking her in and taking her, her, her little snowsuit off and walking her into her class. I wanted to call my brother and say, is the car at home? Could you check it? That makes no sense, right? It would make no sense to anyone. So I sat in this like three hour thing, just like, like, mm. just like this, you know, like, and yeah. I didn't understand any of what was happening, but. I mean, so, th- so that's why, what drove me to therapy were, were these, you know, my eyelashes and having these crazy thoughts and having these nightmares. This was in my forties. This is when I had, it was about six oh, years okay. before, before my sort of midlife breakdown, when I had another sort of my eyelashes fell out and my relationship was breaking out and I was having intrusive thoughts. And that's what sent me to therapy. And when I went to the therapist, I was like, for sure, we're going to talk about my dad. Cause my dad was like a typical seventies dad, you know, explosive anger, like a good dad, but they just didn't know. He says now, you know, there was no Dr. Phil. <laughs> he says there is no Dr. Phil in the seventies. Uh, we all had dads like this when we were young, like they just would blow up, you know, like they just didn't have a, an ability to sort of regulate their emotions and who knows what was going on with them. But she was much more interested in my mom. My mom was a nurse. She was awesome. My mom died when I was 27 and she was a beautiful woman, but she was always very ill. And, um, she had just had an assortment of problems, you know, like bladder infections and endometriosis and migraine headaches and strep throat. Like I just remember just a parade of things and she was a nurse and she, um, she died of pancreatic cancer, but later she had like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and was an amazing nurse in the middle of all of this. But I guess why the therapist was interested was that in my, six, seven, eight, you know, that time when your amygdala is forming um, and you have a mom who you never know what they're going to be like when you, you don't know if they're going to be on the couch, if they're going to be in bed, if they're going to be okay, if they're going to be able to come, if they're that, uh, that combined with sort of the anger of my dad. And now I understand, you know, I understand what he was going through. So that, that changes your brain. She explained to me something very pivotal that I, Mm. I was, I'm probably butchering the explanation of it, but that my brain actually changed the way it formed. And I became a person who was constantly scanning the environment for problems, you know, like constantly always looking ahead. And that made so much sense to me because like I said, I've never been married. I've had long-term relationships. 
um, you know, with some really nice guys and I've almost been married, but in dating, it was definitely like, I could not relax. Like I'm just always trying to see when it's going to get ahead of any problems, you know, like just get ahead of any issues. Um, and that just made a lot of sense to me that, and that was the beginning of a lot of healing. It was interesting. That was around 42. Mm -hmm. Like, so therapy is really good, you know, cause I just, I didn't. And then later on, you know, in recent years, when I learned about attachment theory and why I have this anxious attachment when I'm involved in relationships, um, you know, and why that's developed and how I've started to heal it. And I, I really have. So, um, mm. yeah. And it's interesting at that age, six, seven, eight, my brother's two years younger and he, he didn't have the same, he's, you know, he's had, he has memories of things too, but he doesn't have the same sort of like, he, he was just that much younger. It's so interesting how the, the same events, it's truly so amazing. It's so like illuminating about what it's like to be a human being. So like, you know, like two same events, people look at it and see completely different things, yes. experience it completely different ways. Yes. And it's like, what is your reality? It's like, Oh, my reality is like uh, anxious attachment. And I learned this from mom and dad upbringing and, and learned that I was always responsible. I thought I was always responsible for things and how people were feeling. And other people are like, what are you talking? Like, that's not what I got. You know, that's not, yeah, like that's amazing. So your brother is younger, and your brother's like, I have that with my siblings, by the way. Cause like I have, like I said, eight, and I had a long separation. I guess my parents had like a kind of long separation when we were in high school, and so I think like I had a similar experience. I had like my younger siblings. I think I just think I had like I looked at that from, in a different way, and I think it affected me in a different way than it affected a lot of people. And a lot, some people are like, oh, like, I don't really think about that anymore. I'm totally, it's okay with me. Like, you know, mom and dad are, you know, divorced now and it's all, it's all right. For me, I think I just had a longer period of time where I lived with my parents together, where it wasn't until I was in my twenties that they got divorced, but they were separated when I was in my teens. So I think it just was kind of right during yeah. a pivotal kind of growth time in my life. And so I think it just kind of impressed on me pretty hard, but it sounds like for you too, you know, you were seven six seven right yeah so, that's that brain like when your brain's forming and she was explaining it, it's this really pivotal time i've read about it since but when your parents are separating um i mean that's really difficult like it's not people always talk about divorce it's like oh it's just they just divorce it's not the divorce it's not the fact that they're not together anymore it's that whole period when you feel caught in the middle and you were the most awake and aware for it right like you were the most uh well my sisters and I, yeah, I was, I, I was pretty, I was 17 when they got separated, when they separated for the first time. Yeah. So 16 or 17. And, um, I don't remember exactly how long it lasted, but it was a while. So, yeah. and, and it felt like it was coming, you know, if I'm being honest, like it felt like it was coming and then it was like, okay, then it was try to make it work. And then it eventually kind of ended in divorce. So it was a whole, you know, probably five, eight years the whole time. The whole, the, the whole long, you know, how long the whole thing took. It must have been took. so hard on you. Well, What's that? It must have been so hard on you. Like my parents actually separated for a year, a year before my mom got sick, um, you know, because they had a pretty volatile relationship. They really loved each other. And my mom just left my dad when she was, when I don't know, in just 50, like probably going through menopause. A lot of women, it, you know, it's the whole, <laughs> the stereotype is that men leave women and trade them in for younger models. But that's not true. Like, I've read some stats that about 75% of divorces are initiated by women. 
And I think menopause has a lot to do with it because I remember my mom just wasn't as interested in me, you know, like she just wasn't like obsessed with me. Like she'd always been, she was still loved me and everything. And that's when she left my dad. And this was a really rough year and they ended up getting back together and they were really in love and they went to therapy and they read women are from Mars and men are from Venus. And it seemed to do all sorts of things. And they were like teenagers and they were always making out. It was gross. But um, I remember when they were separated, it was it was so gross. Like they were my, oh, my, my boyfriend found them in my apartment kissing. It was just like, oh, they were, <laughs> you know, you don't want to see your friend. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. But I remember when they were, a little bit. Yeah. I remember when they were separated, I, like having a phone call with one of them. And I had this pink phone that I had since I was 16, you know, like a cord, not like we have now. And I yeah. got off the phone and I was so, this is not like me at all, but I was so frustrated with this separation that I remember I hung up and I just like, kept slamming it like on the phone, like a crazy mm-hmm. person until like pieces of the phone were flying everywhere. And that's like, I was 26 or 25 when that was happening, you know, it's really hard on you and your parents. are. Separating. How old were you? How old do you say you were? Well, my mom died when I was 27 and they worked back together for about a year before she got sick. So I would have probably been 25, but I just remembered I was talking to one of them and it just, I, I just like, I can't handle this thing where they're not together and they're, they don't mean to put you in the middle, but you, you are in the middle because you are in the middle. Like you. It's hard not to think that it's not about you. Yeah. Especially when you're 25. It's a, I wish I could go back and be a different 25 year old, but. Mm. Well, you're a different, you know, adult now you're a different person now. Um, What have been some of the, I guess some of the most positive sort of mental health, realize changes that you've made over the past, you know, yeah, I guess take us through kind of the, the, the healing part of that journey um, that gets us to sort of to where you are today, which is running hot flash, right? Where you're now giving back to and sharing your journey with people. Um, So tell us about, talk about hot flash, but let's talk about that one next. Tell us about the leading up to that, leading up to hot flash and, your, you know, personal kind of healing? So many, so many things. Immediately after sort of my breakdown, I started, I started following really positive people. Like I just went out and like, it just surrounded myself with positivity. So like Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, that's when I found him and Will Smith and um, just all people like, I remember those two in particular, but just like watching them on Instagram, watching their videos learning, listening, just sort of, um, I read like man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning. It's just like a tremendous book. I found mm-hmm. Cheryl Hall who has a website called conscious transitions and a book called, uh, the wisdom of anxiety. She's amazing. She talks about intrusive thoughts and health anxiety, which I had a lot of, even though there were actual symptoms, but you know, what those what those intrusive thoughts mean, what that anxiety of your health, when you feel like you're dying or you might be dying. It's really like that part of you that needs care that you're not giving yourself. Um, uh, So many things like that, like just so many um, books. And I read, Oh, Pema Chodron, um, the Buddhist, like um, when things are falling apart, I think the book is, was just so pivotal. It's a great Um, book. Yeah. Like just um, Michael Singer, um, The Untethered Soul was one of the best books. And 
so that was all rolling. You know, I was like doing work and, and journaling and realizing I should meditate and figuring out um, what was going on. And then really at the beginning of the pandemic, I went on this sort of real awakening and uh, I was dating someone really much younger than me, like 18 years younger than me. And I had a big misunderstanding with him. Uh, he, he had to go away for work and it was, it was a big misunderstanding. And um, he came over to explain what had happened. And I realized it was completely different from what I, I thought he was ghosting me and he wasn't, he'd called me a couple of times. He just wasn't texting very much. Came over and explained it to me. He left. And I just remember thinking that is not at all what I thought. And I, I do this all the time. I always think it's ending and I can't enjoy it because I, and I, it's like, I've never thought of myself as an insecure person, but I looked at our text messages and there was none of me being me. It was just me saying things so that I could get a response to keep it going. It was not two people interacting. And right around that time, I found uh, Mark Groves, who does Create the Love, who I absolutely love. And he was doing like this. Do you know him? Create the Love? No, Mark Gro No, I don't know. Canadian guy. He's awesome. And he's a former pharmaceutical rep. And then he just started being like a human connection specialist. And he had like this little seven day course. And then I did that. I mean, it was the pandemic was coming. I did a seven day course. Then he had a 14 day course. Then he had a return to wholeness, which was really like uncovering even more. I was, you know, therapy had been in the past, but it was like uncovering more of this attachment and more of why I felt like I didn't value myself. And why mm -hmm. am I not showing up with people? And so learning and then learning about attachment and learning. And then I just started dating like absolutely like crazy in the pandemic. Like I know a lot of people were scared and like didn't go out. And <laughs> I was not like that. I was not scared in the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't tell We're in Canada or in Abu Dhabi? In Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Yes. Right, tell us about the dating spree. I kept dating through that entire pandemic, like more than I had ever dated in my entire life. Okay. I, it was like, I had this reaction, like, I am not gonna, like, I'm living right now. And I had a couple of friends who weren't, you know, scared, nervous Nellies about the pandemic. We had our own feelings about it. We didn't think that it was as serious as other people did, but you had to be, you know, you had to be very careful about who you talk to about that. Um, you know, we didn't run around like coughing on people. I'm just saying like, you know, I, I, I sort of kept a certain part of my life going. So I dated. Yeah. You kept dating. Hmm? You kept dating. Yeah, I did. And other yeah. people kept dating and the people that were dating were really cool people, like very open-minded, not scared people. And so it was just a really cool experience. And I dated Arabs for the first time in my life, guys from all over. Everyone was joking. I was on a tour of the Middle East. I had all this op really nice people. Like I had said, I had had, attracted like sort of not great people before. And this time it was different. Like I was attracting different people. I had different relationships. I mm. mean, I dated more than probably 12 or 15 people. And then, um, long, long just, dates, long relationships, like shorter all, all over the place, like three months, like two months. Some, I, sometimes I was dating multiple people at the same time. Like I met a guy a year ago and I was dating like two or three people. I'd never done anything like that. I'd never been able to, I, I just hadn't. And I just learned so much from all of them. And I started showing up and saying things and saying how I felt. And through mm. that, like, that's been the, one of the, that's where I've realized, like, I don't have to be on my own to like heal, like actually interacting with other people is helping me yeah. learn about myself, you know? Yes.
Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that vulnerability and just I'm bringing all of my, my shit to my relationships too. And like, that's, that's me. I'm bringing it here and people, it's amazing. It's amazing. It creates amazing bonds and relationships, right? It's, you get to know people and, it, and then they do it. And what are we doing if we're not doing that? Like, why mm -hmm. am I, you know, one of the things that really helped me was I, right when this was all starting out at this um, woman, Tracy McMillan, I think she's on TV and she has a, she's like a relationship coach. And she had a YouTube video that someone told me to watch called who you should really marry. And it was about how you should really marry yourself. And how when you go on a date with someone, you're just really on an hour of just getting to connect with another human. So just look at it that way. Like stop, you yeah. know, you know, and that's when I started to change this because I really always felt like there was something wrong with me because I'd never gotten married or had kids. And I just started to let it all go. You know, I just started to let it all go and have actual real. And I mean, obviously, I had relationships before and I was real before, but not always, you know, not always. Yeah. And so yeah. when you can start to be really show up for yourself and really just show up for yourself. Then, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, you're just there. Whereas if you're not, if you're pretending and you're not, you're fronting, it's just stupid. I don't know what I was doing. So this is my journey to get to 52. Amazing, amazing journey. I, I, I don't know if you'd change any of it, but it's so such a blessing to hear you and speaking. It's been fun. And Nick, it's been fun. <laughs> I've had fun. Likewise. Likewise. It's a blessing yeah. to hear you and sharing. Um, people need to hear that. And I had a similar, you know, always trying to say the right thing. And I still, ha I still feel that all the time, but I feel like just the, it's like, there's an Albert Einstein quote, life is like a bike. Like life is like riding a bike. Like you have to keep moving to keep your balance. And mm -hmm. I just love that because it's like, life is like not, you know, not retreating into like, I want to be, wait till I've got it all together and uh, and I'm perfect in order to like be who I am and then feel like I need to withdraw. It's like, Hey, like bring everything, you know, like bring everything into anything. And like, just that's who you are. Like 110% of own all that. Like there's no shame in that, you know, like that is really in your mind. That is in our minds. You know, the shame that we put on ourselves is in our minds. It's not in other people may treat us a certain way, but the shame is in our mind. You know, it really is. And just freeing ourselves, releasing ourselves from the care of what other people think is the best thing that we can do for everybody, for everybody, you know, for the whole, everybody in the world, the everybody like, of humanity yeah, like, <laughs> in a way to live a great, like free, vibrant life. I think honestly, like really, 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 and have great, have great intimate relationships, have great friendships. I mean, intimate, like have great intimate relationships, like just saying what you want, you know, oh. and not being or afraid of it like hey i want that giving communication giving feedback hey it's not right it's not right it's okay you know yeah. every, everybody wants different things and and that's okay and it's it's not i don't think shame and somebody wanting something different um and letting go of this whole that need this is what it needs to all look like right the light that life needs to look like this that sex needs to look like this relationships need to look like this career money friendships family homes they all look alike it's like no, they don't actually, they don't. And the more you get out there on, and this is why social media, you know, this is why social media I think has been a great thing. Um, yeah. Because you realize that the narrative in society is way more narrow than reality. And when you start experiencing people directly, you realize 
holy shit, the world is a is the diversity and and just crazy variations in life. Like the diversity in the world is crazy. It's amazing. It's a beautiful place. But what you see in in the United States or Canada, and maybe what you see in Abu Dhabi, I don't know. But what you see in the marketing and the storytelling is different. It is is a much narrower. Uh, less colorful, vibrant view of reality. And so it's just cool to get out there and bring yourself. And the more you bring yourself, the more people are like, they're like, oh shit, man. Like, I like it. I like all the imperfections and the fire and the vulnerability. And like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm inspired by that. And then, and then it's like, whoa, man, like you start just lighting fires everywhere. And it's just like, then, then life's just like a burning flame. And uh, it's just a ride, you know, that's all. It's just a ride. So, um yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that you were just, I'm so happy for you to figure this out at your age because it took me a long time, but that's my journey, but everything gets better. You're right about the narrow view that we see because I think social media is just like that narrow group. And it is just Canada and the United States, by the way, <laughs> there's a bubble around North America that the rest of the world's like, I don't know what's going on. It's quite crazy. But I mean, in terms of, when I started living like that, everything got better. The people, you know, the people I'm seeing, I used to have bad sex. No, no, not anymore. Like it's, it, I don't because I'm showing up in every way. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like I used to think, oh, obviously this is going to happen. Well, of course that would happen to me. And then now I'll watch like TikTok and see people talking about dating and I can't even bear it. Like I can't mm. even bear to watch. And I think, oh gosh, what if you're, you know, I like, I, I'm not looking to go... I've got some a situation and I'm not looking to go on Tinder, but I was thinking the other day, like, I don't think I could do a dating app now because it's full of that. It's full of all those people just not being themselves and not being honest and how I just don't think I could bear it. I don't think I could bear like a text exchange like that. Like I just have to have people showing up. Um, but as soon as you, as soon as you realize that's what you want and that each time you do that, it just gets richer and better and fuller and you, your experience in life is so much better. Yes. Uh, you can't imagine not doing it, you know, and you can't even bear when you see someone like that, you know, are you, are you, um, are you just like not having bad sex now because you're like, oh, okay, confident, comfortable saying like, Oh, I'm not feeling it. I know it's not going to be an enjoyable experience and just kind of this kind of stopping things. Or are you just more communicative? Like, about what your needs are and what you like, like, um, cause that's also been a change for me. And I was just like, how has that been for you? Like, how is the better having just better sexual experiences? Like, how is that, how has that materialized? How has that materialized? Cause that is something that's happened in the last three years. Like, obviously I had boyfriends and it was good, but like most of the time when I would have sex, it was bad. And I just felt it was bad. And it was like in a movie read, see, it was bad, you know? And then I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't say anything. I would be able to say anything. I just wouldn't be able to say what I wanted or suggest anything. And I don't know what happened, but it's sort of like a confluence of when I started doing this, I started to feel like if you told me at 30 that I would feel more attractive and sexy at 52 than I ever have in my life before, I would say that's absolutely crazy. And that mm. I would be having sex with people who think I'm the hot, the hottest and yet, like younger people, like, I would say none of this could possibly be true, but that's because then I didn't feel comfortable with myself. So, and then now I can say something, you know, like I can say something, but also I've attracted people who are so giving 
that mm. the conversations I'm having is I'm not having to say, look, like I, I need, you know, you to be a bit more this way because they are that way. So I don't, I can't even explain to you what's going on. It's like an energy thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I'm attracting people who are giving, and I think I'm just spending time with people who are just further along in their journey or something, or just more giving, or I don't, I don't know. I really don't know actually, mm -hmm. but real, I am much real connection. There's real vulnerability. There's real connection. Yeah. yeah. Intimacy. And I'm more, intimacy. If, if you're, you have to be comfortable with yourself to have really good sex. Like that's just, you have to feel like you're a good person. Like you can't be walking around in shame or thinking distracted out of your head. Like that's not good. You're not going to have good sex. And that's, I guess the way I was most of my life. Right. And mm -hmm. I thought certain parts of sex were just for the man. And then I'm learning to enjoy all parts of sex. It's like, I don't know what I thought. I just, I, I just, I just had a lot of like mediocre sex and I wish I hadn't bothered, but now I'm making up for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to have you back. Go ahead. What are you going to say? You're going to say something else? Just to, to go on that because I haven't, you know, I'm very unique in the fact that I haven't been married. So I've had, I, I've had like the longest relationship I've had was like seven years and four years. So I haven't got into these 25 year relationships that a lot of my friends and, and women I'm talking to are having and situations where maybe they never really did like the sex, but they never said anything in the beginning. There's, this has happened, you know, a long time. And mm -hmm. like there's people having bad sex that they've been having for 25 years or just sex that they didn't want. And I imagine like, imagine trying to have that conversation when you're waking mm -hmm. up. At, at 50 and saying like, I don't want this anymore. And I know this is happening. So this is very difficult, but I talked to a nurse practitioner, Jessica Bedonsky about this. And I've talked to about this, a couple of people about this, about how it's important to think if you're having sex with someone that you don't really, you're not really enjoying it. How do you know that they're enjoying it? You know, mm -hmm. like um, how, how do you know that they're happy with it? Like, wouldn't it be worth just having a conversation and you don't have to say I've been faking orgasms for 25 years. You don't have to say that stuff. You just like, <laughs> are you lucky? because a lot of my generation and I mean, a lot of people are getting their ideas of what sex is from porn. This is what I'm saying. Like I didn't really like actual sex. I thought was a certain way. And maybe I was just, I was supposed to be enjoying it more than I was. And then I didn't know how to ask for it in a way that I enjoyed and I think that men are sometimes having sex in that way because they've seen it and that's how they think people are, you're supposed to have sex. And I just think, again, if no conversation is happening, happening, um, mm. uh, but this, this is something that's, that's happening. A if you're not enjoying it, what makes you think the other, what, what, what inside you, what voice is telling you that the other person, that this is what they want? Is it that like you assume that, oh, I have to be unhappy. I have to not enjoy it because yeah. somebody you know, what is it? Uh, I, I don't know. That, that came to mind for me. But I, I think you're right. I think it is porn. I think it is. I think that's a huge part of it. It's what you see on TV. It's what you see in movies where sex is short. And it's all about like, pen, you know, it's all about like penetration. And it's always like fast. And it's just like a pound, you know, it's just like pounding. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not a connective experience. No, I mean, the, sh experience. the show wouldn't like, they couldn't show sex the way it is because it would be like a weird like lifetime movie kind of, I don't know. It would just be like, not good for the show. Right. Like I understand why it's like that, but it's also damaging. Um, yeah. Such a good point, Emery. That's actually such a good point. Like it's almost just like, how do you show something that you can't, it's not about how it looks. It's about how it feels. Right. How, how do you, how do you capture something on a screen that it's not about how it looks? Um, yeah. it's about, there's probably other things like that. I have no analogies right now, but there's probably other things like that where it's like, 
it's just like, hey, we're just trying to represent something, that something's happening. Like, it's not meant, it's not literally what, you know, right. Um, it's, sex is about how it feels, not about how it looks. I feel the same way, like, life is about how it feels, not about how it looks. Surfing, yeah. I love surfing. Surfing is about how it feels. It's not about how it looks. It's about the subtle movements, the subtle changes, the vibrations, the energy, the feelings. That's what it's about. And just enjoying that and being in your body and not in your mind is how you have a great time surfing. I think how you have a great time having sex too. <laughs> well, I think Same films, I think films, um, I think realizing that all the stuff you see and you watch and people are obviously watching way too much TV and numbing and everyone's done that. But like, I think realizing that when you watch a film or a TV show, and I learned this from screenwriting, like everything is in there for it to serve a purpose, to move the story along. And so like all the things we take away, like I know in dating, like a lot of stuff is like the guy should, the guy should do this. He should be calling me. I shouldn't, a lot of that stuff you just pick up from pop culture mm. and TV. And really a lot of that stuff is just there to move the story along and serve the script. And you're absorbing it, watching it over and over, like it's actually real, right? So you'll mm -hmm. even think that about sex or, you know, so it just helps to, this helps to the awakening that you have at this age, which I think is part of this hero's journey, helps you look at everything and just sort of think, okay, huh, what, how is that playing a role in my life? And how, how is it giving me ideas and limiting my experience that I'm actually having? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's why, I mean, I think it's great that you're on the show talking about your story. Cause I think like, that's how hearing other stories, you know, like the narrative, the stories we hear, the narratives that we hear, the narratives that we ingrain, we live our lives as stories, like they, they affect us a lot. So I love that you're, I'm grateful that you're sharing your story. I'd like for you to come back and do, uh, do share your story more, like do a round two of the podcast. Um, sure. I, I, I love that a lot. I want to ch chat about Hot Flash before we, before we go today though. Um, Hot Flash is your organization to help women who are going through or experiencing symptoms of menopause. Um, maybe you would describe it a little bit differently. Actually, I'd love to hear um, you tell, kind of describe the inspiration for starting it and what you're accomplishing uh, through that organization in your own words. Well, it started out because when I was 47 and I realized I was in perimenopause, I made a Google alert because I'm, I was like, okay, well, I'll learn all about this. I write about health all the time and I want to know what's going on here. I want to know all about it. When I started, when I wrapped my head around it, everything got better about that. And then what information I had back was just terrible. And I'm a content like obsessive, you know, I just like love producing content. Social media has been such a fun time for me because I mean, when I started out in journalism, you had like a computer and that was it. And or a TV or a camera, a huge camera, and you had to rent an editor, you know, like you couldn't, what, what you can do now is just delights me. Uh, it's mm. a little too much sometimes, but I just thought this content is terrible. Like it's either looks like it was bought from freelancer.com by someone who just like Googled uh, like, you know, or, or it's really negative and like fear mongering, like daily mail, or it's just pushing a narrative or it's like SEO. Like I remember I read this article and it said vaginal dryness. It must've said it like 25 times in this article, vaginal dryness. I was like, okay, like, I guess you're, I get you're doing SEO. I don't even think that's how you do it, but like, <laughs> other, I really don't think you're supposed to put a word 25 times, but you know, I just was like, all this sucks. This content sucks. Like I could do so much with this. And I just started thinking, I don't know why I thought newsletter. I, people go crazy about Gwyneth Paltrow and they can't stand her and they say goop is dangerous, but I've been following that story since the beginning. 
I'm really impressed by her as a founder because, you know, she started, she paid for that and she got that newsletter. And I just was thinking I could do that with a newsletter. And it mm-hmm. was before Substack was like, when I started thinking about it in 2018, it was, I guess Substack was around, but the newsletter, you know, it was only the savviest people who were doing newsletters. And I just started to think I could do a newsletter. Um, and then I had a lot of ideas about other things I could do. Like I did really want to do a lot more, but um, when the pandemic came, I had a few um, freelance contracts that disappeared as many people did. And I thought, okay, I've just got to do it now. So I just did it mm-hmm. and started sending it out. And um, I basically originally was like, okay, I'm, I really want to inform people because there's so much stuff that isn't being covered. And I noticed early on that it's very heavily focused on hormone therapy and there's a very heavy pharmaceutical narrative uh, as there is in a lot of our world, right? Like there's money to be made and it was very polarized. It was like either hormone therapy or natural. And I just thought that there was so much space in the middle. So that's only mm. gotten worse, but I just thought I want to inform. I want to inspire and entertain because there's, you know, be funny. And I just have a certain way of looking at things. I don't like entertainment. I don't like jokes about chin hair. You know, I don't like, like, I don't like a lot of whining and like, I just, I just thought I want to do it my way. So I did the newsletter and I, 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 have had this focus before in my career. Like I had my, I had this focus when I first tried to get into journalism. I was just thinking today, like I applied for like 250 jobs when you didn't email, like I had to mail. <laughs> and I was just like, I would call editors and I was crazy. And this hot flashes, I have this renewed sense of purpose. And then I started out with about 200 um, people that I knew. And then, you know, I thought it would grow faster to be honest, but um <laughs> Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what I thought. I thought I'd have like tens of thousands of people, but um, I, it's been about two and a half years and I have about across all platforms, about 25,000 people now that are following wow. and I'm on TikTok. So that was fun. And there's been really cool things right. that have happened. Like mostly just the experts that I've met that are also working in it. I've met the coolest women, like New Zealand, Australia, like I have friends, you know, like I, that I can call like on in California and in Maine. And it's just like crazy. These women mm-hmm. that I've connected with really good women, very few crappy people, but some, um, and just really smart people. And then I, you know, like anything as the time has gone on, I've been like, okay, there's a real narrative here pushing hormone therapy as like the silver bullet. And what's getting lost is what I believe it's this major life shift of where you, you heal and you come into your own and you figure out mm-hmm. how you your life to be so I've started to feel even that it's more important than even when I started you know like in the beginning I was like oh I want to fill that gap and I don't think there's good content now I feel like without being too I don't want to be self-important but I feel like this can't get lost because yes the narrative now is go on hormone therapy and you know why aren't you in hormone therapy that's basically uh, like and asking questions about any of the other stuff, it's it's just like a lot of the world, frankly. So I've sort of started to feel like I have more of a mission. But mm. um, it's a nuanced approach, right? So it's not very social media friendly. So there's, you know, a lot of people who are growing and growing, and I'm just plodding along. <laughs> but I want to podcast too. Very, and I, have- I love the approach, though. It's very conducive to conversation and, com- and building of community. This is all I want. Like, I couldn't do it any other way. Even in the beginning, this woman started around the same time as me. And I thought she was like, um, this is going to sound mean, but she just seemed like a little bit dim. And she was just only doing a social media account about her HRT journey. And she, 
it was, she just blew up. So obviously I was irritated, right? Because she was just like, every time I would check, she would have like another thousand followers. And I'd be like, she's not, all she's doing is like Googling and writing about hormone therapy. Like I'm like doing all this research. And then I just stopped (laughs) following her. I was like, this is going to make you create, like, you can't be like this, right? Like you're doing it your way Mm. And, uh, and you'll find your people. So, and I've had some really cool wins, you know, like I, I was always wanting to do a podcast, but a brand actually offered to sponsor. So that's how I got my podcast started. And um, I've got, you know, some, some revenue that I hadn't expected. And now I'm looking at it as a business because I think the more that I can do, the more people I can reach. So this year I'm looking, I'm going to publish my first book. I'm going to, I have a menopause shift summit that I do with some partners in Toronto. We're going to do that again. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, my Substack is free, but I'm launching like a paid version so I can put out more issues. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, becoming more comfortable with that being a, yeah, I've got some interns. <laughs> and, and what's the best way for people that are listening, what's the best way for them to, to connect with you? Like, where would you, you know, suggest they, they find you? Okay. So all this like Twitter, TikTok, um, Instagram, I'm a hot flash Inc. INC, and then I have a website. Hot Flash Inc. Substack and podcasts are the two like deepest, you know, like it's hotflash.substack.com. And okay. um, that's Substack, where, you know. Is Substack written? Is Substack like a, your a article content? Yeah, but I can also send out podcasts there and I can send out video. They just, I'm in a beta video program so I can make videos. And I, I did broadcast journalism. So I love all, I love all these different mediums, but really this year I'm going to focus on Substack and podcasting. And I have a YouTube channel that I'm going to be, I'm populating now because I just, there's this surface stuff. Um, I think we're getting a little bit sick of it and uh, you know, people are making, there's a lot of videos where people are like acting out their symptoms. And I just, that I can't, I can't do that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I can't like throw ice on myself and, uh, first I can do it. So I'm going to focus on, I think we're getting ready for a little bit more depth. And so I figure I'm going to go all in there and, you know, with podcasting is amazing. Like this is That'll- the fact that I can get an uh, expert in Australia to speak to me is like the fact that I can, yeah, the people I can speak to and the mm-hmm. conversations that you can have just from this technology. It's just like, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your content, your writing is ama- really, really great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for sharing that. It's cool to see that this intersection happening, being you being a writer, right? And being in broadcast journalism and you doing that. And now you're kind of like marrying that life path with your passion of helping women who are going through helping women with mental health. And I mean, you help me. This conversation has helped me. I say you're helping everybody, you know, with hey. your journey. No, it's not just menopause. It's mental health and just identity and purpose and... um. You're, they, everybody's on a hero's journey, right? That's life. We're all, everybody's it's, on a hero's story. journey. Once, yeah, everyone needs. Yeah, that's what we're. That's what we're here for. It's just reflecting reality. And it's funny you say that about journalism because I always, I straddled. I, you know, you're supposed to specialize. They say specialize. You know that that was one of the bad advice pieces of advice that Gen X got all the time is like you're doing too much. You're doing too many things. You got to focus. And I said no. I want to do broadcasting because. I want those skills. I want to be able to put it, you know, and, and then when blogs came around, I was the first person to get a blog and I, I, I embraced social media, like, and I, it it didn't make sense at the time, but it, it does Mm -hmm. tickle my fancy so much that I'm 52 and I was able to put all these things together because 
the technology like that I can do now, the things I can do just with me and a couple of interns is insane. It's insane. So Amazing. Are your interns in Abu Dhabi or where are your interns at? I got a couple of interns at the um, at, uh, New York University Abu Dhabi. They have students from okay. all over the world. So I, I needed to get organized. So I got an intern from India, Armenia, and Ukraine. These three girls, they're amazing. Amazing. That's cool. Um, any other, so that's where people can find you, your Hot Flash Inc. on a TikTok and Instagram, right? And then um, on Substack as well, your Hot Flash Inc. Is that right? Yep. And yep. where's your podcast? You have a podcast as well, right? Where, where, where's do. the best way to find that? Um, well, it's it's at all the it's on all the places. It's hot flashing. It's hosted on Buzzsprout. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, everything is hot flashing. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will. I'd like to love to continue this conversation. Do like a round. Have you on for part two? Um, I'm going to talk to you. You have to come on my podcast because I think it's just delightful that you ending up to talking to all these. I just think your story is hilarious and fun. <laughs> Thanks. The the part about me thinking I was starting a company for twenty five to thirty five year olds and that yes. and that <laughs> I love it. I, love nice. I just love it. I think it's the coolest thing ever. Like you you thought you were doing one and this happens, right? Like they always say this in business. Like you have to listen. You can't just keep hammering away at the thing you want. But I just think it's delightful that you have a podcast where you're talking to all of us. You probably never could have imagined. I honestly, I, I it's really been a lovely time. Um, I've been, I enjoy it. Um, like I do, I really do. I kind of see it as a blessing in a way because I do learning about something that I don't know a lot about, but it's like, yeah. I, I find it really interesting. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can relate to some of it because I just remember when my mom, like as my mom started to enter menopause, like I just remember I, I witnessed uh, our relationship has changed um, a lot and um, it's, been really nice though. It's been really like nice um, to. I just gotten to know her. I think deeper in a different oh, way. As wow. like, a, as like a woman, like I see her now more less as like more. I see her less as like my mom. I would say, and like more just like she's like she's a woman, you know. And I kind of know her as like a woman now. It's it's cool to like have a more just kind of come have, have a more like relationship of equals, I guess I would say like a relationship yeah. of like adults, right? Like, yeah, she's a human being that when she was 25 or she was 30 was like, you know, me, like me, you know, but she was, so it's been beautiful. Um, and I just enjoyed this conversation and enjoy your story. So me thank too. you. I did. Thank you so much. You as our listener enable us to keep going here at Sojin. Thank you for listening. Thank you for enjoying this content. We appreciate you. We're grateful for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating on Spotify. And if you have comments or feedback, you can reach us at flowstate at sojin.co. That's flowstate at sojen.co. I'll see you guys next time.